All right, so, so question, which is it? Is it Laurel or Yanny? Laurel or Yanny? Do, do you all know what I'm talking about? Okay, so for those who don't, for the past few weeks, like, the internet has gone crazy over a short audio clip. It's this recording of a man saying a two-syllable word, and what that word is, is up for a very heated debate, right? Half the world hears the word Laurel, half the world hears the word Yanny. The whole thing is this crazy phenomenon that causes us to reflect on this truth, that it is entirely possible to listen to someone's words, but not hear what they're saying. Ouch. And my wife knows that this is entirely possible. She's lived with me for a long time. I always hear her words, but I don't always hear what she's saying. So, Lindsay, if you can hear me, I'm, I'm sorry, in front of our church family. This morning, we begin our eight-week series. We're diving into the parables of Jesus A parable is a short, simple story that illustrates a deep, often spiritual reality. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus taught in parables all the time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, we see a season of ministry in which Jesus said virtually nothing without a parable. His closest followers, his disciples even asked him, Why do you speak so often in parables? Why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus answers them in chapter 13, verse 13, in a perplexing way. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. The reason why Jesus so often taught in parables was essentially to demonstrate the phenomena of Laurel and Yanni. Church, everyone can listen But not everyone can hear. Everyone in Galilee lended an ear to Jesus, but only a few heard him because listening does not always equate to hearing. Listening involves the ear, while hearing involves the conscience, the soul, the mind, the heart. The parables, Pastor Jared Wilson writes, are designed to stir those whose antennae are tuned to their frequencies and to confound those whose antennae are not. This is the scribes and Pharisees, if we remember them, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They always wanted to listen to Jesus. They were always showing up to listen to what Jesus had to say, but they never really heard what Jesus had to say. And as a result, we see them constantly confounded by Jesus' teaching. See, Jesus did not teach and preach in parables to warm our hearts Or to inspire us to do the right things. He taught in parables in order that those who hear would respond with awe and faith and worship. The Laurel and Yanni phenomena reminds us that it's entirely possible that some of us in this very room have for years listened to the words of Jesus. We've listened to scripture preached Sunday after Sunday, week after week, but we've never really heard what Jesus is saying. So for this reason, I trust that these next eight weeks will benefit every one of us in the room. 
Maybe you've been a believer your whole life. Maybe you've just recently come to faith in Christ. Maybe you're questioning and searching. Maybe you reject Christianity all out, and the only reason you're here is either because of the occasion or a family member dragged you here. First of all, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. As we dive into the parables, you might discover that the Christianity you've rejected is not really Christianity at all. And maybe it's more of a 21st century moral therapeutic counterfeit that even Jesus would reject. And so as we dive into the parables of Jesus, we're going to see what Christianity really is. We're going to see what life is really supposed to look like under Jesus' redemptive rule. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Matthew, the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 44. If you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table by our offering box. And we would love to give you a copy of the Bible if you don't have one. Let it be our gift to you. So while you're turning there to Matthew 13, 44, let me set the scene really quick. Jesus has been traveling throughout the region of Galilee. He's been teaching, preaching, and performing many miracles He's been calling everyone, men, women, and children, to turn from their sin. And he's been announcing this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And because of the spectacle that Jesus was, large crowds of Jews and Gentiles, non-religious and religious, were gathering around him and following him everywhere. And in verse 44, Jesus says primarily to his disciples, but also the crowds within earshot, he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great worth, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, church? Father, give us ears, not just to listen. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So two short parables, one radical Idea. In this first parable, we've got a man who's digging himself a hole in a field that does not belong to him. This man could be an employee of the landowner or a family member or a friend. We don't know. All we know is that he's digging away, and then all of a sudden, just like in every pirate movie ever, right, he hits it. Clunk. He unearths what I like to envision as an old, dirt-covered, mossy, wooden chest full of treasure, right? Now, for for Jesus' first century audience, this would not have been too far-fetched because back then, since they didn't have banks or safety deposit boxes, burying valuables in secret locations was not uncommon. This was a common practice. And this lucky guy in the parable, he manages to stumble upon such a location by complete accident. Don't miss that. He wasn't even looking for this treasure, but he stumbles upon it anyway. 
and he opens this treasure up, and I, I imagine him, he carefully is counting and examining all the piece, uh, pieces of its contents, right? Again, like the movies, he's biting the gold coin to make sure that it's not chocolate, that it's, that it's real. He's absolutely overwhelmed and overjoyed by this discovery, something that he wasn't even searching for, something he never knew existed, he has found, and just like that, everything has changed. His passions and priorities, his dreams, his desires, everything is forever changed. He cannot unfind what he's found. And what he does is radical. He puts all the treasure back into the chest, back into the hole. It's not his. And then don't miss this word, in his joy, he runs back to his house and he puts everything he owns in the front yard just like my wife does every summer. Everything he owns in the front yard, his couch, his TV, his dishwasher, dresser, desk, clothes, shoes, frames, granite countertops, even the hipster farmhouse sink. It's all out there, and he puts up two signs, one in front of the pile and one on his house. What do they say? For sale. For sale. Imagine what his family and friends might have thought. Are you crazy? But in his joy, in his joy, he sells it all. He gives it all up to buy the field. Jesus continues this same idea with the parable of the pearl. This time, the main character, the merchant, is searching. He's searching for, look for the plural, find pearls. Okay? He's not looking for anyone in particular. He's just searching He doesn't know exactly what he's looking for, but he knows that he'll know when he finds it, and he does, right? He finds the one, the pearl of great worth. And just like that, his whole life has changed. His passions and priorities, his dreams, his desires, everything is forever changed. And what this man does is equally radical. Imagine the conversation between he and his neighbor. Just imagine with me, right? He's out in the yard. Yep, I'm putting it all up. The house, the boat, the car, the kid's trampoline, it's all for sale if you want it. And the neighbor goes, oh, man, you've been such a fantastic neighbor. I'm so sad to see you go. Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm going to buy a pearl. A pearl? Uh Uh-huh. A pearl. Imagine the crowd surrounding Jesus as he told these parables. To the ones who were listening with their ears, Jesus' words were utter foolishness. Who would ever trade all of their possessions for one single pearl? And yet there were people in that crowd amongst the disciples who were hearing Jesus with their hearts. And they knew that his words were truth and life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot, the missionary martyr. In two short parables, Jesus is communicating one 
radical idea, and here it is. Like the treasure, like the pearl, the kingdom of heaven is so wonderful. It is so glorious. It is so satisfying. It is worth losing everything for. Everything. John Piper says it this way. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. This is the radical truth that is at the heart of today's passage. And experiencing, tangibly experiencing this truth for ourselves is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But here's the problem. Few professing Christians actually experience this truth that the kingdom of heaven is so glorious that it's worth losing everything for. Because we're too occupied being the general contractors of our own counterfeit kingdoms. We're too busy building our castles and our moats and our towers and our own security to recognize. So God, give us ears to hear. For the remainder of our time, I have two points that we're going to look at if you're a note taker. What is the kingdom of heaven? And what does it mean for us? Number one, what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking with the rich young ruler and he uses those phrases, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. And in a broad sense, the kingdom of heaven includes all that is in the universe. Psalm 103, 19 clearly states, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, but his kingdom rules over all. Because God is the ultimate sovereign, he's the most high, he's the king above all kings, in a broad sense, in a broad sense, the kingdom of heaven includes everything in the universe. Now this was specifically true before the fall of humanity. This was especially true before the fall of humanity. Remember, in the early days of creation... However, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God's rule in the Garden of Eden, a new kingdom, so to speak, was forged. A fallen kingdom, an earthly kingdom, a kingdom of man. It's in this sense that the kingdom of heaven no longer includes all in the universe because All of humanity has rebelled against God, each of us in our own way. Because of that, we have made ourselves exiles of the kingdom of heaven. We have all been banned by our own willing desire. We've been banned from the kingdom of heaven into the fallen kingdom of man that we helped create. But thank God the story did not and does not end there. Instead of destroying us and our rebellious kingdom that we had created, God became like us and entered into our counterfeit kingdom. Born as a baby to a young woman named Mary, God the Son willingly inserted himself into our exile. 
Every other religion on the planet, every other so-called God demands that humanity pick themselves up by the bootstraps and ascend upward. But only the Bible speaks of a God who came down to save humanity. Only the Bible. This narrative is unique. We need to understand that. Jesus Christ became a new Adam, a new firstborn, who would reunite the kingdom of heaven with creation the way it was intended from the beginning. And unlike the first Adam, and unlike us, Jesus, the new Adam, perfectly obeyed God's desire. He perfectly submitted to the Father's kingship over the kingdom of heaven. But he did even more. In order to reclaim our fallen world for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus took our sin and the disobedience that severed us from the kingdom of heaven, and he became it. He became as a chief rebel among men. He became all of our murder and materialism. He became our lust and our gossip and our gluttony. He became our sin, and then he killed our sin by allowing himself to be killed on a cross. But he didn't stay dead because he's God. He holds the keys to life and death, not sin, not Satan, not anyone or anything else. And right now, the resurrected Son of God calls all men, women, and children to turn from their sin and by his blood to re-enter the kingdom of heaven by faith. Trusting that his sacrificial death was enough to pay the penalty for our rebellion and that his resurrected life is proof that kingdom citizens, kingdom citizens of heaven, will live forever. So what is the kingdom of heaven? It is Jesus' rule over the hearts of those who trust in his saving work and submit to God's authority in their lives. The kingdom of heaven is the good, abundant, everlasting life that God intended us to have since the beginning that has now been reissued to us, to those who receive it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'll even boil that down further. The kingdom of heaven is the good life through Jesus and with Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is is freedom from sin right now and the hope of future wholeness and fullness and goodness and glory where there is no sin, where wickedness and evil are purged, where death and decay and disease and destruction are vanquished. The kingdom of heaven future tense is beyond what any eye has seen and what any mind can conceive. Do we believe the words of scripture when it says this? Does it sound too good to be true? It shouldn't. It's what we were originally made for. We can boil down the kingdom of heaven to one word, one name. Jesus. The presence and peace and pleasure and power that is Jesus' rule over our lives. This is the kingdom of heaven now and forever. What does it mean for us this morning? Point two, 
It means that all the things we are working so hard to achieve on earth, peace, pleasure, power, these things are already infinitely ours in Jesus Christ. The true peace that we're working so hard to find in our 401ks, in our jobs, in our home security systems, in our treasures, it already infinitely is ours in Jesus. The true pleasure that we're looking so hard to find, many of us in pornography, in premarital sex, in the overindulgence of food and drink, in possessions, treasures, the true pleasure that we seek is already ours in Christ Jesus. Truer pleasure. The true power that we're looking so hard to find in our relationships, our social status, our mental and physical fitness and stamina, the true power that we're seeking to strengthen and sustain us for everlasting life is already ours in Jesus Christ. And so you need to hear this, that the peace that you think you have in your savings account is a counterfeit. It will rust. You cannot take it with you. And with the swing of the stock market, it could all go away. It doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus wants to give to you. The pleasure that you think you have in the abundance of possessions is a counterfeit. It doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus wants to give to you. The power you think you have in your social status or your perfectly fine-tuned diet is counterfeit power. It doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus wants to give to you. This is why the Apostle Paul, as Scott led us this morning in our liturgy, he wrote to the Christians in Philippi and he said this, whatever gain I had, Whatever counterfeit peace I was trying to build up, counterfeit pleasure, counterfeit power, all of the status, all of the pomp and circumstance, whatever I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, having him, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Who of us can say that? By God's grace, we all will. Paul knows that whatever bits of his own kingdom he's trying to hold on to, they're only going to serve to water down and spoil the kingdom of heaven that Jesus wants to give to him. Because as Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. We think we can juggle our material desires by being slightly generous on the side. 
But Jesus says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money, stuff. You cannot serve God and possessions. You cannot serve God and sex. You cannot serve God and your reputation at school, in the lunchroom or in the locker room or at work by the water cooler. You can't serve both of those things. Neither can I. And it's killing me to try. Do you feel the weight of trying so hard to build two kingdoms simultaneously that will not work in harmony with one another? Jesus says, it's all or nothing. And I want to give you all. Don't we see? He has put... God has put his own son to death to rescue us from the counterfeit kingdoms that we try to build each and every week. He promises us that life lived his way in the kingdom of heaven is the most wonderful and abundant and most satisfying life possible. This is why the man in the parable was so willing in his joy to exchange everything for a single pearl because the kingdom of heaven is so valuable. Do you believe this? That losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. Oh, that we would take God up on this promise. Instead of settling for spending our time and talent, money and resources the same ways every day, year after year after year, trying to secretly, covertly build our kingdom on the side, if we would just take him up on the offer, true and abundant and full and everlasting life awaits us right now. It will look different than what you're expecting. It may not result in the house with the moat around it. It probably won't. But that's okay. In our joy, there is a great exchange that can be made today. The Apostle Paul knew this. Jim Elliott, whom I quoted earlier, the missionary martyr, knew this. My friend Joseph Thomas knew this when, when he was at Denison University and he wrote his final paper on the supreme worth of knowing Christ, even though he knew that his professor was a militant atheist. He knew it was going to cost him. I love this man, Joseph Thomas. And in his joy... He failed the course, and he was not allowed to walk with his graduating class. In his joy, he was able to present the gospel to a professor who probably never heard it clearly articulated. In his joy, he exchanged a counterfeit kingdom of temporal success for the eternal kingdom of heaven in Christ. Who's willing to do that? If this idea doesn't freak you out, you're not thinking about it rightly. But Jesus said to us in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, because it is the Father's heart to give you the kingdom. Jesus promises us in Matthew 19 that everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for his sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I don't always know what that means, but man, does it sound good. The presence and peace and pleasure and power of Jesus Christ in us, our hope for glory. Do we believe this 
Because Jesus is inviting you into citizenship in the kingdom of heaven today. He wants to give you that peace and pleasure and power of his presence in his kingdom today. He's inviting you, like the woman at the well, to drink from a well that never is unsatisfying. Put that in a double negative. To eat from a table that fulfills every hunger. He is inviting us today in these two simple parables to surrender what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose And if you're wondering, that all sounds good, Chris. How? Where, where do we start? Matthew 5.3 is probably one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what that means? Do we know what that means? Right now in our seats, it's simply acknowledging that we don't do this right. That we've got our kingdoms all mixed up and we are blind guides, leading blind guides. We, we don't know which way is north, but our eyes are on him. And all we need to bring before the Lord is need. That's the gospel. If you're here and you're thinking, this all sounds good, I don't know what to do, just be needy and tell him, I don't have this all together. Help me, rescue me by the blood of Jesus. And he will, he will, he has. He'll reorient our treasures. Church, if Substance Ashland, Substance Worcester can get our treasures, our kingdoms in the right order by God's grace, Ashland and Worcester will be forever changed. May look small on paper, they will be forever changed. There is real power in beholding the kingdom of heaven in Christ. Final warning, and then I'm going to close. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven will immediately make us an alien in the kingdom of man. You will not naturally fit in with your employees. You should not naturally fit in with the kids at the lunch table, in the locker room. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven immediately makes us sojourners in a land that we once called home. And so this is where it is critical. Hear me. If you are not plugged into community, do so. Do not wait. Get involved. We have four CGs, community groups, here in Worcester. We have six or seven in Ashland. If you're closer there, we want to do life and community with you every week and, and every day in between every week because we are aliens and sojourners and it will get lonely really quick because the enemy is going to be after us. We're, we're holding a different kingdom flag. Be warned and plug into a church that preaches the Bible and centers around the community of Christ. Do so. The invitation for you today is that if you desire to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, this, this amazing kingdom, this treasure that these men in the parables left everything for, take the Lord's word on up on it. Believe that he will bless you abundantly in this kingdom beyond what these physical things are today and, and put your faith in him. Tell him that you, like 
Matthew 5, 3, are poor in spirit. You don't have your own righteousness to bring before him. You don't have this worked out and then ask for his saving grace. He came to save. He's in the business of it. Would you pray with me? High King of heaven, thy victory won. May we reach heaven's joys and, O bright heaven's sun. I pray, Lord God, even in retrospect, that you would give ears to some to hear afresh today. That they would respond to the kingdom invitation that you came. Lord, you came to save us from our counterfeit kingdom that is sapping us, zapping us of life. And you came to give us life abundant and to the fullest. Lord, I pray we would take you up on that today. Lord, forgive me, a 21st century middle class white male who builds his kingdom every day and puts his own flag on the flagpole. I, I am a, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a counterfeit forger. And I often encourage people to do it. Lord, forgive me. Save me. Heal our church and let us be true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.